0: Hey, if you're listening to this before March 3rd, 2022, you may want to take note, that is the anniversary of the Kentucky Meat Shower, which is a story I love, and I wrote a book about it, and I will be doing a live reading on our YouTube channel, and then I have a link to that from thepastandthecurious.com. I hope you'll join, it's a really fun day, I'm going to do a reading at 11, p.m. No, sorry, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and... I have a really, really, really big announcement that I'm going to unveil then. Uh, It involves Kickstarter. It involves something I've been wanting to do for a long time. So you do the math or just wait until March 3rd for the live reading and find out for yourself. But I'm really excited well hello everybody welcome to the past and the curious my name is mick sullivan this is episode 65 and it is about there's two men they were both born in 1913 which is i think kind of remarkable i didn't really put that together until towards the end the first man that you're going to learn about you know as jesse owens that wasn't always his name and he was uh, a remarkable athlete one of the greatest of all time a goat you might say and the second man is a less familiar figure also born in 1913 his name is samuel wilbert tucker and he was a lawyer he fought in world war ii uh, but he was actually an incredible civil rights pioneer a leader kind of working behind the scenes but he helped stage one of the very first successful sit-ins in civil rights history, which was way back in 1939. Um, And just a reminder, March 3rd, I'd love for you to join or stay tuned because big stuff is coming. Anyway, let's get started. It was 3.15 p.m. on May 25th in Ann Arbor, Michigan, when a 21-year-old student and track star from Ohio State University took his place at the starting line to run the 100-yard dash. The stadium around him was crowded with onlookers. While today we might think of basketball, baseball, or soccer as being audience favorites, in 1935, track and field events were also quite popular with the public. Since this was the Big Ten Conference Championship, many of the greatest young athletes in America were there to compete, and it was a safe bet that many of the day's top competitors would join the Olympic team heading to Germany the following year. Perhaps this is a reason such a crowd came out to watch the many events that day, or perhaps another reason for the large gathering was the 21-year-old Ohio State athlete at the starting line. His name? was Jesse Owens. Minutes before slowly making his way to the track, Jesse had to look his coach in the eye and convince him, with every ounce of confidence that he could muster, that he would be all right. Jesse, it was only a couple of days ago that you fell down the stairs. Please, don't do this. It wasn't a graceful slip either. Jesse went top over tea kettle, down an entire flight of stairs at his Ohio State University dorm. And as a result, his back was out of whack, to say the least. You've barely been able to walk. Stand up. Straighten your back out. You can't, can you? How are you going to be able to run? How? Seriously, how? Jesse winced with pain as he put on his shirt, which he couldn't even do by himself. Someone stepped up to help him, alarmed by the pain on Jesse's face. Seriously, how? Jesse managed to convince the coach to let him compete. Jesse hoped he'd be okay, but he knew what an important day this could be for his career. So he also knew that he had to find something deep within himself. And as he stood at the starting line, the pain, the tenderness, and the tightness disappeared from his mind and his back. His coach questioned the safety of what was about to happen. He expected the worst. He expected Jesse to lose, and lose bad. More importantly, he thought Jesse might do lasting damage to his body. Was he right? He was worse than right. I mean, he was right to think that, but ultimately, he was wrong. The starting pistol was fired, and as if nothing troubled him at all, Jesse immediately bolted the 100-yard distance. To see him move so fast and so free was astonishing for those who knew just how injured he was. 9.4 seconds. That was the official time it took to cross the finish line. Injured back or not, Jesse just tied the world record. Event judges used several stopwatches to be safe, and it was policy to take the slowest time from any of those stopwatches as the official time. A few of those stopwatches actually timed Jesse's run at 9.3 seconds, which would have beaten the world record, but 9.4 was the time on the field. Seriously, how? Jesse didn't have time to worry about the difference between 9.3 and 9.4, he and his injured back had to hustle over to the next event, the long jump, which was scheduled at 3.35. He, unlike others competing, would only get one jump because as soon as he'd launched himself into the sandpit, he'd immediately have to hustle off to yet another event. The world record was a long jump of 26 feet and 2 inches. Knowing this and wanting a target for his single chance, Jesse measured the distance from the launch pad and grimaced with a bit of pain as he bent over to place a white handkerchief on the ground to mark the current record. When ready, he took his mark, forgot again about his pain, and took off running, building up speed over the 108-yard approach to the spot from which he would jump. Silent eyes watched as Jesse launched himself into the air and soared above the heads of people standing nearby. And when he finally came back down to earth, after what seemed like an eternity in air, his jump carried him over 8.1 meters, or 26 feet and 8 inches. Jesse had flung himself 6 inches farther than the world record. Boom. Seriously, how? Everyone was stunned. Perhaps the most excited person in the crowd that day was Jesse's high school coach, Charles Riley, who had made the drive from Ohio to watch. Jesse Owens was born James Cleveland Owens in 1913 in Alabama. Family called him by his initials, J.C. His parents were sharecroppers and had so little money that when the young boy developed a tumor on his chest, they couldn't afford a doctor. So his mother performed the operation and removed it herself. Life was tough. Eventually, his sister moved to Cleveland, Ohio, one of many who left the farmlands of the South for industrialized cities in the North in a movement known as the Great Migration. Mary Owens, Jesse's mom and amateur surgeon, knew it was the best chance for the rest of her family too and pushed them to join the sister in Ohio. Now, despite sharing a name with the city, Cleveland was a different world for young J.C. When he arrived at school, a teacher asked his name, and when James Cleveland replied with his initials, J.C., his southern accent was so strong that the teacher assumed he had said Jesse. He never corrected her, so soon J.C. became Jesse. Not long after, a track coach named Charles Riley happened to see the boy run, and he was flabbergasted. Never had he seen such potential, such speed, and such grace on two legs. He invited Jesse to join the track team, and even offered the boy individual coaching. Jesse, excited that someone recognized his potential and wanted to help, immediately agreed but then quickly remembered that he had to work nearly every day after school. The man was unfazed, so the two agreed to meet in the mornings before class to work on the mechanics of running. Those days were long and exhausting but they helped Jesse harness his abilities and soon he was one of the most dominant and mystifyingly fast athletes in America. He'd prove a few years later that he was also one of the most dominant in the world. But before that, he still had work to do with a sore back at the 1935 Ann Arbor track meet. Jesse had no time to celebrate the world record long jump he had just set at 3.35 that afternoon. He had to be on the starting line 10 minutes later at 3.45 to run another race, the 220-yard dash. This race was run in a straight line, And since the World Olympic Committee used the metric system, the scorekeepers were also timing the race for a 200 meter distance. The difference between 220 yards and 200 meters is only about 47 inches, but they are technically two different race types, which happened to be measurable in the same run. Jesse, who must not have felt any back pain at all now, took his mark and exploded down the track the instant the starting gun was fired. Despite other racers racing the same competition, he may as well have been alone. No one could keep up with him. When he crossed the finish line 20.3 seconds later, he had broken the world record for 220 yards. Some quick math showed that he had also broken the world record for the 200 meter. Boom, two world records, one race. Or should I say boom, boom. If you're counting at home, that's three world records in one half hour. Uh, seriously, how? How? Not a bad day so far, but Jesse was not done. At 4 o'clock, he would run the short hurdles, basically the same race that he had just run, except with the added challenge of hurdles to jump over along the racetrack. Jesse didn't really care for hurdle events, and he felt it wasn't his strongest competition, so he even considered not running them that day. Not because of his back injury, just because it wasn't his favorite thing. Ultimately, he took his mark at the starting line and yet again bolted down his lane at the sound of the starting gun. The hurdles in his way slowed him down, but not by much, because he crossed the same finish line again in a mere 22.6 seconds. When he saw his time, he knew yet again that he had broken a world record. But actually, again... It was two world records, both the short hurdle 220 yards and the short hurdle 200 meters. Boom, 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 boom. That's five booms, one for each world record. The injured Jesse Owens broke, and he did it all in 45 minutes. Seriously, how? I know, right? But also, if you recall, that first race, he had tied and possibly set another world record in that same time frame. When Charles Riley, Jesse's high school coach, was able to make his way to the field, he was overcome with joy. He couldn't even speak. He just wrapped his arms around Jesse, put his head on his shoulder, and cried tears of joy for the athlete. Later that day, Jesse had to climb out of a window to avoid the constant barrage of fans who were eager to congratulate him. Most important to Jesse at that point was probably resting his sore back. Many people refer to this stretch of time on May 25th, 1935, as the greatest 45 minutes in sports. No one has ever come close to such a spectacular performance in such a short amount of time. And as well-remembered as it is, Jesse's injury is often overlooked. He fell down the stairs days before the competition. It's hard to understand how he did what he did, but he did it. The following year, Jesse Owens would travel to Germany for the 1936 Olympics. Once there, another incredible performance of his would make history and embarrass the German leader, Adolf Hitler. Jesse brought home four gold medals and set a few more world records. But that is another story entirely The Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast is your secret weapon for connecting and laughing with kids of all ages, teens, toddlers, adults, it doesn't matter. Spark their curiosity and challenge their brains with every episode. New episodes drop weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Search for the Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast and turn those car rides into epic adventures. Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? For this month's You Have 30 Seconds, we have Mary Margaret coming to tell you about a story I have never heard before, but I love it. Hi, my name is Mary Margaret from Austin, Texas, and I am here to tell you about Santa Ana's funeral for his leg. He was the general of, of the Mexican army when they fought against Texas in the Texas Revolution. He had a funeral for his leg when it got cut off. Isn't that funny? I wonder who attended. I wonder who attended too. That would be quite a funeral to attend, wouldn't it? Hey, if you have a you have a 30 seconds, you have a you have a you have a 30 seconds, then what you need to do is uh, record it on a voice recorder or some other medium and send it to us at hello at the, past and the Mary Margaret, that was great. Thank you so much. And, uh, sorry about the leg. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. That's right. That's right, everybody. That's it's right. Quiz it's quiz time. In the 1936 Olympics, Jesse Owens again broke the world record for the 200 meter, but he wasn't the only one. Another American named Mac Robinson... Came in second place to Jesse, but was so fast he also beat the world record. Mac had a famous brother. Any idea who he was? It's amazing that two runners broke the world record in the same race, and Mac Robinson never earned as much fame for his silver medal, at least not as much as Jesse did mac's brother however jackie robinson would make history because later he broke the color barrier when he became the first black major league baseball player in the 1900s okay question number two jesse owens wore a new shoe at the 1936 olympics and helped launch a brand which brand of shoe did jesse help make famous A man named Adi Dessler convinced Jesse and others to wear his new handmade leather shoe originally designed for track and field. Adi Dessler named the shoe company after himself, in a way. You might know it as Adidas. Question number three. The last story, the story that you're about to hear, is about libraries. And the New York Public Library is one of the most famous in the world. Outside are two animal statues named Patience and Fortitude. What kind of animals are they? They are lions. Originally, they were named Leo Astor and Leo Lennox in honor of John Astor and James Lennox, who were major donors to the library. But in the 1930s, they were renamed Patience and Fortitude. 1913 was an important year for the people of this episode. Since they were both born that year, it might be the most important, you could say. Three months before James Cleveland Owens was born in Alabama, another baby was born in Alexandria, Virginia. His name was Samuel Wilbert Tucker. Unlike Jesse Owens, Samuel Tucker would go by his given name until his final days in 1990. The day he was born was June 18, 1913, and throughout his life, Samuel Tucker would say that this was not just his birthday, but the very day he joined the struggle for civil rights in America. His grandfather had been prosperous in the days between the Civil War and the rise of Jim Crow laws, which was the term for racist laws that were passed in the late 1800s to limit the power of black Americans. Among these were laws around segregation, The term separate but equal was used to describe the availability of resources like schools and healthcare and public accommodations, but anyone who looked could see that while people were separated by the color of their skin, there was nothing equal about the resources in their everyday lives. A simple case in point would be young Samuel Tucker's education. There was not a high school available for him to attend in his home of Alexandria, Virginia. That's not to say there wasn't a high school at all. There very much was, and this all-white high school was visible from the front porch of his house, but he was not allowed to attend. Instead, after elementary school, he was on his own. His dad worked in real estate, and his mother was a teacher, so they clearly saw the value of education for all of their children, and they came up with a workaround, something Samuel later called a bootleg education. Washington, D.C. was about 10 miles away. And for all the washington dc school system knew samuel tucker was a resident of that city but he was not unbeknownst to anyone at school samuel and his siblings would walk 22 blocks from home to catch a streetcar and then take a 20-minute trolley ride to a washington dc high school technically speaking this was illegal he and his family were not citizens of washington and therefore they were not supposed to be enrolled in that city's public education But with no education option in his own city, it should be pretty easy to see why he chose to do it. And also easy to understand that he was working around an unfair law in order to go to school. It wasn't easy. Once, he and his brothers, one older and one younger, were arrested when a white woman boarded the trolley car and claimed that they were in her seat. In a move similar to one that would make Rosa Parks famous several decades later, the Tucker brothers did not give up their seats. As a result, they were arrested and threatened with fines. Fining teenagers trying to get to school is pretty ridiculous, but that didn't stop the prosecutors from trying. They graciously decided not to fine the youngest Tucker brother, but Samuel was fined $5, and his older brother, who they said should have known better than the others not to break the law, was fined $50. $50. Fortunately, when their court date came, the jury found them not guilty, and the fines were dropped. When he finished his bootleg education at Washington's Armstrong High School with flying colors, Samuel Tucker enrolled at Howard University, a historically black university that had been founded in Washington DC way back in 1867. He'd always been interested in law. A friend of his father's was a lawyer who shared an office with the elder Mr. Tucker. This man nurtured Samuel's interests, talking, answering many questions, and gladly lending legal books for the curious boy. Young Samuel began to see himself as a lawyer in the future, and while at university, he began to understand more about the laws that kept equality out of reach from he and his fellow black Americans. He also learned about the way people like India's Mahatma Gandhi forced big changes through nonviolence and resistance. Now, more than ever, Becoming a lawyer was his goal. He knew that he could make big changes, but there was no way for him to get a law degree near his home. So after he graduated in 1933, he spent a year using mail order and correspondence lessons to teach himself to become a lawyer. In 1934, he passed the Virginia Bar and officially became James Wilbert Tucker, attorney at law. He was 21 years old. A few years later, in 1937, a new library opened up in Alexandria, just two blocks from Samuel Tucker's law office. He walked past it every day, but he never went inside. Just like the high school he could see from his steps but was not allowed to attend, this library was a whites-only facility. Despite separate-but-equal laws saying Black residents would get equal accommodations, there was no library for Alexandria's black residents to use. Samuel Tucker didn't want a separate library though. He wanted everyone to use the same Alexandria library. So Samuel came up with a groundbreaking plan to shine a light on the unfairness, and he got help from five young men. It was a Monday morning in August of 1939 when a young black resident of Alexandria walked in the door of the library and asked for a library card in order to borrow books. When the woman behind the counter told him no, he calmly and quietly walked to a shelf, chose a book, sat down at a table, and started reading. Not long after, another man followed in his footsteps. When this fellow was denied the same request, he too found a book on a shelf. Finding a table far away from the first man, he sat down and also read. Three other young men would follow the first two and do essentially the same thing. Card? No? Book. Sit. Read. Be quiet. Samuel Tucker had walked them through the plan many times. It was important that they were polite. It was important that they sat apart and spoke not to one another. It was important, in fact, that they spoke to no one but the librarian. Most importantly, this would give no one the grounds to arrest them for disorderly conduct. As expected, the men were arrested anyway. Samuel Tucker was across the street in his office. Outside the library, a group of people assembled, including members of the press that Tucker had tipped off. The five men calmly and quietly went with the officers to the police station. The event became big news locally. But unfortunately, it was overshadowed in the national news by events in Europe that would lead to World War II. At the trial, Tucker was able to prove that the men had done nothing wrong. They were arrested purely because of the color of their skin and nothing else. It was true. The arresting officer even remarked that the young men were very polite, and ultimately the judge agreed with Tucker, in a way at least. There was no library for Alexandria's black residents so they couldn't technically prevent black citizens of Alexandria from using the building. However, this backfired. The city rushed to build a second library, which, as you might guess, was separate but not equal. Once this new library, the Robinson Library, was open, the city's black residents could no longer use the original library and had to settle for secondhand typewriters and well-worn and out-of-date books, the only thing the new branch had to offer. Samuel Tucker was furious and refused to get a library card from a segregated library. Despite this, the library plan involving the young men is remembered as one of the first sit-in protests in the struggle for American civil rights. In the decades that followed, nonviolent protests in the form of sit-ins and boycotts and demonstrations would make more Americans aware of the struggle for equality and also force those in power to listen to the needs of all people. A few years after that historic sit-in, America was pulled into World War II. Samuel Tucker felt compelled to put his legal career on hold and enlist in the army. He became an officer in the 366th Division, rising to the rank of Major. Along with the men of his division, he fought bravely throughout Italy and the men respected him for his intelligence and cool-headed demeanor. When the war ended, he was eager to get back to Virginia to continue his legal practice and to focus, yet again, on equality in America. He settled in the small town of Emporia, Virginia, where he felt he was needed most. There were not any other black lawyers there at the time, so it was important to him to work on behalf of the area's population, He defended citizens falsely accused of crimes, and he worked to integrate Virginia's school systems. He even argued several civil rights cases in front of the United States Supreme Court. His quiet nature and aversion to the limelight of fame meant that his name would not be as familiar to Americans as other leaders of the civil rights era. But Samuel Tucker was working behind the scenes constantly, using his legal genius and unlimited dedication to justice through the 1970s. His library sit-in was a model for many and one of the first successful protests of its kind in America. He died in 1990. Among one of his highest honors is a burial in Arlington Cemetery, America's national cemetery for soldiers and other honorable Americans. Major Samuel Tucker was proud of his service, but he would have been prouder still of the monument built in his honor in Emporia, Virginia. It calls him an effective, unrelenting advocate for freedom, equality, and human dignity, principles he loved, things that mattered. Also of note, the former Robinson Library in Arlington, the one that was built after his sit-in, is now a museum, and Samuel Wilbert Tucker is a big part of the history that they tell. Well, thank you so much for listening to episode 65. This was a joy to put together. Uh, it's been tight, been doing a lot of work, trying to get a bunch of stuff done, but I appreciate you being along for the ride and I'm so glad to be doing it. Uh, if Again, if you're not doing anything March 3rd, you want to come hang out for a live reading on YouTube Live, uh, I'm going to be doing the meat shower. At 11 a.m eastern standard time and 7 p.m eastern standard time so twice that day you get two chances and if you can't make it that's cool you can celebrate kentucky meat shower day the anniversary in your own way you know like i'm sure you have a i'm sure you have a thing you do every year right i mean everyone does so um now uh, i do i do have some page oh also i'm i'm really excited about the announcement so if you don't make it to that then um I will be shouting about it the next day on Friday. So, you know, just stay tuned and maybe think about helping out with the Kickstarter project. So um, I have some Patreon people to thank right now. Um, This is cool. Actually, Talia, who is from Australia and just turned nine, I think like two days ago or three days ago. Happy birthday, Talia. And greetings to you from Kentucky. That's so awesome. Happy birthday. Seth Stolison in Texas. I owe you a shout out as well. How you doing, Seth? Glad you're out there. Oh, another happy birthday. Two of them actually brothers, Dane and Will. Birthdays are like two days apart, right? That's awesome. (laughs) So happy birthday to you, Dane and Will. Uh, Hanson, Dane and Will Hanson, that is. Not just any Dane and Will. Oh wait, I think it's Dave. No, I'm wrong, it's not Dave. It's Dane, I was right the whole time. I just have messy writing. Dane, Will, happy birthday. Um, Also, Milan from Montreal. That's awesome. It was great to get a note from you in the icy north. Uh, It's not much warmer down here, so, you know, we can live in that together. And uh, also, next, I'm going to give a shout-out to Aiden and Brandon. I know that you all are probably listening on the way to school. So, hey, what's up, y'all? I'm in your car with you. Let's, Let's talk about history and listen to this weird accordion music that's my band um also henry and matt uh and i had a message from your mom rebecca as well so glad that you all listen it's i'm thrilled that everyone out there is enjoying the show and down there in florida i need to say hello to sadie sadie i'm so glad that you're out there as well hello to you and everyone in your life who might listen along with you i'm so glad you're doing it uh, another pair of brothers. These guys are in Chicago, Henry and William in Chicago. Shout out to you, Henry and William. Yes. And last but not least, oh, I've run out of music. And last but not least, we have Evan Mossauer, Mossauer in California. Evan, hello to you and shout out. And I'm so glad you're out there like everybody else. That that goes for everybody. Glad you're out there. My name is Mick Sullivan. This has been The Past and the Curious, and uh, I'll be talking to you very soon. Stay tuned for some big news.